Welcome to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast, where I discover stories of grit, resilience, and connection. I'm your host, Marie Gigi, and this podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications. As a writer and marketing communications consultant, I can turn a piece of lackluster, jargon-filled, or technical prose into clear, dynamic narrative. When I'm not doing that, I help people discover what makes them special and help them share that with the world. If you need help, revamping or creating your website, marketing materials, or any kind of document, look us up on FertileGroundCommunications.com. I'd love to give you a free 30-minute consult. Each week, I alternate this Finding Fertile Ground podcast with my other podcast, Companies That Care, which is about business leaders making a difference in the world. On both of my podcasts, I strive to highlight voices from historically excluded populations, the people who don't always get a platform. You can find all the information on my website and social media. This week, I'm thrilled to feature Terry Kozlowski. She is a proud Native American warrior of the Athabascan Tlingit tribe and Raven clan. When she was just 11 years old, her mother sold her for drugs and shut her out on the streets of Albuquerque, New Mexico. Let's meet Terry and hear her story. Welcome, Terry, to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast. So great to have you with us today. Thank you very much for having me, Marie. I'm happy to be here. Let's just dive right in. Since you're a published author and you've written a lot and spoken a lot about your experiences, can you tell us about your childhood and your grit and resilience story? I was born, as all children are, with fearlessness and authenticity. And then our first unknown is our family. And my family had some good things and some bad things. And for me, the bad thing was my mother. And for most of us who have issues with our mothers, they tend to be a little bit harder to resolve, especially daughters, because we mirror what what our mothers are. And we use that as the first and real example of how we're supposed to live in the world. And my example was not good. My mother was an alcoholic from a young age. She married my dad on his way to uh, Vietnam. And by the time they got married, she was an alcoholic. And she had allowed drugs then to intervene uh, as it escalated her dependency. And my parents divorced when uh, I was eight years old. And we didn't see my mother from the time I was six or seven until I was 11, except for one time. So we didn't see a lot of my mother. And in the summer of 1980, when I was 11 years old, she had contacted my dad, said she was in AA and that she really wanted to see us. Well, my sister and I being girls, And not seeing my mother, we wanted to see her. So we wanted to go. And my dad finally acquiesced and allowed us to the visit that started out fabulously. First two weeks of the visit, uh, we were supposed to be there for six weeks, was some of the best memories I have with my mother. And then she started drinking. And from there, it spiraled downward. And by the fourth week, she was having lots of parties. And all of my codependent behaviors that I had when I was four, five, six, seven, all kicked in again. And I was doing everything I could to take care of my mother and also my baby sister, who's 11 months younger than I am. So I am playing the adult and and doing my part as best I can as an 11-year-old can. And she allows people to drug my sister 
And then that night that they drugged her, she allowed three men to sexually molest me so that she could have drugs. And then she disappeared. And literally for three days, have no idea where she was. She never came back to the efficiency apartment that we were in. And when she did come back, she literally kicked us out. She put our suitcases on the front stoop and told us to go home. Home was 3,000 miles away. And I had to figure out what to do and how to get my sister and I back home. So I grew up very, very quickly at 11. And all of that occurred in a time and a place where child sexual abuse wasn't talked about. And I came back from that trip, got off the airplane and walked up to my dad and said that I needed therapy. An 11 year old in 1980 most likely doesn't know what therapy is. And this is where I come and say, I still had great awareness of who I authentically was at this point. I knew what had happened to me was wrong. I knew it wasn't my fault, but I also knew it was bigger than something I could handle. And at 11, you don't have the language to try to communicate this. Therapy really wasn't very beneficial because they didn't know how to talk to me. And I didn't have language to say, this is what happened to me. And by the time I did have language, when I understood what sex was, and I understood what had happened to me on a more cognitive level than an emotional level, I still, at that point, I had great shame about what happened. And also, I still didn't want my mother to get in trouble. You know, I'm still mm -hmm. trying to protect my mother. Mm -hmm. When I told my dad what happened, he asked, you know, do you want to you know, press charges. And I knew enough to say no. I had done a research paper on child abuse. And I understood that from the court systems in the early 80s, it was not something that was easily proven. And going through all that stuff and emotional aspect of things, I said no. So as I moved forward, and I stayed in therapy until I was 18. And we never talked about the rape. We did talk about the abandonment a bit and understanding how, again, all that wasn't my fault. But I learned more about what psychology was. I learned what my dad needed to hear from me. I learned what the adults wanted, and I understood the mask I needed to wear. And I put on a really good mask, and for a long time, everybody thought I was fine. I was okay. And I had triggers because... That's to be anticipated. And I was very vocal about my triggers. I was one of those that said, you know what, if you're going to be my friend, if we're going to try to have a relationship, whether it was in high school or in college, I was quite vocal that I had a traumatic experience. I have some triggers and I don't want to harm you. I don't want to overreact to you. I don't want my behavior to be a cause of discord between us. So again, I'm still very aware I had somebody in college tell me that I liked being a victim. And I got very angry, which is the, the normal response to that. And I'm like, who are you to tell me anything about my victimhood? But something about how he said it. You know, he was very kind and he wasn't trying to upset me in it. He was trying to get me to see something. So I sat with it. I journaled about it. And over a period of time, I realized I did get something out of being the victim. And what most victims don't realize is when they hold on to their victimhood, there is something that they think they're getting from it. And what I was getting from it was 
when you are a victim and you're vocal about your victimhood, people treat you differently. They're careful around you. They walk on eggshells. They're careful not to trigger you. They don't want to upset you. So they tend to be more quiet around you. And ultimately, they leave you alone. And that's what I wanted. I wanted to be left alone. And when I realized that that was the core issue, that I wanted to be left alone, I realized there was also a better way for me to communicate that. I could be vocal and say, I don't have to friend everybody. The first major mindset shift I had was going from victim to survivor. And it caused two things to occur. Number one, I now had to quit blaming my mother. I had to quit blaming the sexual abuse. I had to quit blaming the abandonment for the decisions I was now making. Whether I made good ones or bad ones, they were still mine to make. My mother wasn't around telling me what to do. I wasn't speaking to her. So me blaming my poor decision-making on the past was not empowering for me. And that's the second thing that happened was now all of a sudden I was empowered to take over and take control of my present and my future. And when you are a victim and you stay stuck in your victimhood, you don't have any control. You don't feel you have any control because you are stuck in the past. And the past is full of the abuser, full of the trauma, full of the pain, full of the anxiety. And when you move out of that, when you become a survivor and you start taking responsibility and taking control over your next step, all of that that you thought belonged to the abuser, what you thought belonged to the trauma actually is within you now to control as you take steps to move forward with your life. Did I understand you correctly when you said that in all the years of therapy you had, you never talked about the rape? Correct. I wasn't going to bring it up. I was still in deep shame during those periods of time. The first person I ever heard of that had child sexual trauma was Oprah Winfrey. Mm -hmm. I'm watching her show. And when she came out on national television and said that she was sexually abused, I thought, oh, I'm not the only one. Mm -hmm. And I really thought up until that moment, I was the only person on the planet that had gone through this. That tells you the era when she did that. It was shocking to the nation that she did that, number one. There were so many of us that suffer in silence because we think we're the only ones. Mm -hmm. right. I think it's very different now. It's been very different for the past 20 years. But I think that the, the awareness has really changed over the years. And now, if you even suspect it, you can have a child psychologist go in and use dolls and, and talk about it in a way that is safe for the child. Because again, a child doesn't have the language to say, this person did this to me. They, they just don't have the language. I, too, was a childhood sexual abuse survivor, and I was 13, but my parents were therapists, so maybe they had different tools. So I'm just really surprised the therapist never talked to you about that. I went up through, even up to a psychiatrist, and of course, they wanted to drug me, and my dad was kind enough not to allow that to happen because I was, although, yes, I was depressed, I was functioning. Mm -hmm. You know, I went to school, I did my homework, I went to school dances, I did as best I could those teenage years to be a teenager. I don't know that 
you know, my dad had the resources to perpetuate what needed to be done. I also think that from a universal's perspective that I was meant to walk this path by myself. I really do think that for a lot of victims of trauma, they go to therapy and they go to somebody who has never had that type of experience and who cannot relate except through book knowledge of what that feels like. The thoughts that go through our head, those times where we're suicidal, those times where we think, okay, today I can do better. And each of us who have gone through that can really identify with one another in a way that somebody who hasn't gone through anything remotely similar can truly understand and comprehend what it is that we're struggling with. Mm -hmm. No, that's absolutely true. And I'm so sorry that you had to go through that all those years alone. That must have been really hard. Did you talk about it with your sister at all? And that's kind of why my dad found out was because my sister got mad at me and started screaming around the house about what had happened to me. So my experience in talking to my sister was not necessarily a good one. And for a long time, we didn't talk about it. And then right before I had written my book and right before my book, Raven Transcending Fear came out, she and I had a thorough sit down conversation because I wanted her to understand what I was getting ready to put out into the world Mm -hmm. and that it was completely my story. And although, yes, she's mentioned in it, it was my version of what had happened. And whether it matched hers or not, I wasn't concerned. This was what I felt happened, what I experienced, my emotion and my recovery and my walk through healing myself. I see. So you didn't really talk about it much with your children then? No. Just later? Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. That's too bad because you had somebody there right there who could have understood it with you and processed it with you. So did you ever hear from your mother again? My mother and I did not communicate much when we came back from New Mexico, which is where the trauma took place, because every time she called, I would get upset. So my dad quit having her call and told her to quit communicating. So we went through that for a while. And over the course of the rest of her life, because she passed about 10 years ago, in the course of her life, I saw her three times total and we communicated by phone on and off over the years. But the last six years of her life, we didn't communicate at all. And those three times were when I got married the first time, I was 21 and I was always hopeful that my mother and I would reconcile. And I would have hated for us to have reconciled and look back and have her and not have her at my wedding. So the first time I got married, she was invited. I was shocked she showed up. And it was a non-eventful time period as far as her and I were concerned. Two years later, I had an 18-month-old son, and my sister had an eight-month-old daughter. She wanted to go visit my mother, and I didn't like her driving across country by herself. When we arrived, my mother was sober, and about sober for about 36 hours before she started drinking. And as soon as she started drinking, my son and I left. So she got to meet my son, her only grandson at the time. And then when this would have been in 96. She went to Alaska, which is where she's originally from, for the first time in over 40 years. And I decided to tag along and visit with all the family and her and I not be alone. That was the last time I saw my mother, February of 1996. Did she ever talk to you about what had happened? She acknowledged once that a rape occurred 
as she put it. But her aspect of it, no. She never admitted that she allowed it to happen. She never once mentioned the abandonment, anything like that. The rest of her life, she never did. Mm -hmm. You still wanted a relationship with her after that. All little girls want a relationship with their mother. And i that's the part of me, I think, that tried to believe that there would be a reconciliation was that little girl. There's a fabulous picture of me literally hanging off my mother. I have my arms around her neck and I'm hanging off of her. And you can see the love in my eyes for my mother. Mm-hmm. And that little girl always waited for her mother to be her mother again. Mm-hmm. So what did you do when you were on the streets of Albuquerque at 11? How did you get home? I was a very aware child. And when we went to go to visit my mother, the last thing my dad said to me was to take care of my baby sister. And that was a very probable statement for all parents to tell their children, the oldest who take care of Mm -hmm. the younger ones. I am very, very careful over the years that I never did that because I know exactly what that did to me. Mm-hmm. In the trauma, what it did to me is that my mother has shut the door. She's locked the door. We're standing out on the street. My sister starts to sob. And just like that, the tape in my head of my dad saying, take care of your baby sister, clicked on. And it stayed on until she was in her 30s. There's the negative aspect of that statement. But at the time, it was the statement that allowed me to say, okay, I have to figure out what to do next. What is it that I should do? So I'm trying to calm my sister down. And we determined that we can go to my mother's best friend's house. And we were walking a mile away on the streets of Albuquerque, New Mexico, an 11-year-old and a 10-year-old carrying suitcases, Ugh. and nobody stops us. Wow. Nobody, nobody acknowledges us. And we get there, and we let her know that I need to use the phone. I need to call my dad. We need to go home. Now, what my sister didn't know was that this person was my mother's friend who also instigated the rape. So my sister didn't know that. So I'm trying to do what's best and trying to keep my sister calm and try to get us home. So I call my dad. I don't tell him we've been kicked out. I tell him it's time to come home and we need to come home fast. And, you know, he's asked me if I'm safe. And I said, currently I am. And he made the arrangements for us to be on a plane the next day. One of the last things he said to me before we hung up that day was, do you have a way to get to the airport? And I had to pause because the people we were with, none of them had cars. Uh And I said, yes. And he said, are you sure? I said, yes. So the person that brought my mother to pick us up when we arrived for the visit, his name was Alan. And he was a nuclear physicist at Los Alamos. And he says to me, if you need anything, anything at all, you call me and I will be here. When my dad asked me about getting to the airport, Alan came to mind and I called Alan next and he said, absolutely, he would be there. And he came the next morning, picked up my sister and I, took us to the airport, walked us onto the airplane to make sure that we were safe and sound. I never saw that man again. Being aware that the universe always has people around you to help you and who are kind to you. And Alan was one of those angels in my life. Yeah, that's great. I'm glad that you had somebody to help you that that Mm -hmm. difficult time in your life. 
So interesting because I was with two other girls when I was sexually abused and I was the oldest at age 13 and kind of in a similar way. Nobody asked me to take charge, but I can totally relate to you feeling like you needed to solve everything, <laughs> even though you were not much older. Like it's a, it's a big mantle to put on a child's shoulders. Yeah, it absolutely is. And yet most parents do that. When you look at the generational patterns of behavior, that's exactly what happened. The older children always helped take care of the younger children, even though it really wasn't, it's not the responsibility of a child to take care of another child. Right, exactly. I'm trying to think back on whether I've ever told my children that. <laughs> I don't think I have, but you know, I don't know. So I know you've told your story in your memoir, Raven Transcending Fear. What was the process like of sharing your story in, in writing and how did you learn to transcend that fear and grow up? So my book came about because I got pregnant with a book. If you would have asked me prior to 2018 if, to write my story, I would have not just said no. I would have said hell no. It was not something I ever wanted to do. It wasn't something I ever thought was needed. And then in 2018, I became so pregnant with the book and it literally poured out of me. I did everything that you're not supposed to do when you write a book which was I didn't have an outline. I had no concept of how this was going to happen. All I did was sit down at my computer and type. And in nine months, I had a rough draft of a manuscript. It took longer to edit it than it did to write it. <laughs> right. But the way I transcended, it was really going through six specific steps that allowed me to process things in steps because healing happens through a journey. And whether we've been through trauma or not, most of us have things we have to heal from in order to live the life we dream of having. And that journey to me is a journey back to spirit and journey back to being your authentic self. For those of us who've had trauma in our lives, part of trying to figure out who we authentically are is removing some of the masks and labels we put on because of the trauma, because of the self-defense mechanisms we put into place. When we are young, we don't realize that as adults, those self-defense mechanisms actually are harming us and keeping us from authentically connecting with others. And that's part of that healing journey. Okay, great. And can you talk a little bit about your Native American roots and how they've contributed to make you who you are? Sure. My mother was born inside the Arctic Circle in a little town called Fort Yukon, a Native community. And she was part of Athabascan Tinglet tribe, Raven Clan. And she lived a sustenance life until she was 16 years old when her and her two sisters that were right behind her in age were given up for adoption. And she left Fort Yukon on an airplane, and she had never seen an airplane before, let alone flown in one. And the first night that she was in what she called the white man's world, she turned the light switch on and off, and her and her sisters watched the toilet water go down because they had never seen electricity or running water before. My mother's Native American-ness, her authentic self, was ripped away from her when she had to learn to conform and be a good white Christian girl. Mm -hmm. She was adopted by missionaries. So that Christianity was extremely important to that family. And they thought they were doing a fabulous thing for these little girls, brought them pretty dresses, were giving them a better education, better opportunities. But at the same time, they didn't allow them their belongings that they came with. 
They had a language that they no longer could speak. So all of who they were were ripped away from them. And all three of them ended up having alcoholic issues and a lot of mental illness because of what they suffered. So for me, the Native American aspect of who I am, although my mother always said we were Native American, she never taught us what that meant. So I did a lot of research in high school and college and over the years to understand what being Athabascan, Tinglet, Raven clan meant. And the Raven part of Raven Transcending Fear is part of that Tinglet tradition. For us, the Raven is the bringer of light to humanity. And I use that as a metaphor because when we look at bringing light into our lives and shining it in those areas that we consider dark and those shadows of ourselves that we don't like, when we do that, we find out who we authentically are. And really and truly, all those shadow portions of us are the parts of our ego that is used to protect us from others and not make those human connections that are so vital for us. Our brains are wired to make those human connections. And if we don't have them because we've isolated ourselves, then we don't ever allow ourselves to truly heal. Have you been able to connect with other tribal members or feel like you're part of that community? I am connected to my cousin and she and I communicate regularly. Other than that, not necessarily. When we went to Alaska in 1996, I met the family. And it's interesting because I see myself in their faces, but they all are trying to fit into society, which I find interesting because they want better lives for themselves. And the village of Fort Yukon has electricity. It has a school. Supplies are flown in as far as meat, but still it is sustenance living. They hunt and fish, and that is their main sources of food. They have internet and they can connect with the rest of us, but it's interesting how different their lives are. Keep in mind, you know, in the wintertime, they only have like two and a half hours of dusky daylight. So, you know, yeah, they're inside the Arctic Circle. So it's cold and it's dark. And I always am shocked at my cousin because I never think she looks like she's warm. She's wearing enough clothes to be warm. <laughs> when she sends pictures in the wintertime. Okay. So where do you live now? And can you tell listeners about your current life? So I currently live in Woodstock, Georgia, and I am a life coach. In 2020, I started a podcast called Soul Solutions, which you can listen on any platform. And what I do is I delve into one subject area and hope that the listeners can walk away with actionable items to help get over their limiting beliefs and their fears. What would you tell your 11-year-old self? Ooh, I would tell her that she's got this, that no matter what she's currently thinking, everything does work out and she will be okay. At 11, I didn't trust that everything would be okay. Uh -huh. And it took me decades to learn to trust that whatever the universe had for me, it would work out and I would be okay. Okay, great. Is there a story of grit and resilience that has been an inspiration for you in your life? I would have to say it would be Oprah Winfrey and her ability to rise above not only her child sexual abuse, but also her abandonment from her mother and her unplanned pregnancy and her ability to overcome 
over and over and over again. And to rise in an environment that was not meant for women, let alone African-American women of color, to rise. Mm -hmm. And she was able to do that and really show not just herself, but the world that persistence counts. Okay, great. Thank you so much for your time, Terry. It's been great talking to you. Thank you very much, Marie, for having me. Terry's story is heartbreaking and astonishing. You can find further details about Terry and see photos on my website. Go to www.fertilegroundcommunications.com and look for the podcast tab. Next week for the Companies That Care podcast, I interview Laura Smith from Dad's Garage, a theater in Atlanta, Georgia, that is a gateway to theater for many audience members. Dad's is heavily invested in its community, and Laura has a unique background managing the business of theater. I love to hear from listeners. If you're inspired by this episode or any others, or have an idea for a guest or a topic I should cover, drop me a line at marie at fertilegroundcommunications.com. Thanks for listening to the Finding Fertile Ground podcast. If you like today's episode, please subscribe and leave a review. Our music is by jazz pianist Jonathan Swanson. This podcast is brought to you by Fertile Ground Communications.